Welcome back to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. This is the first episode of the second season of our show, and I'm looking forward to another enlivening set of conversations. Among other things, this season will explore the crisis of school violence, the manufacture of consent, the animal origin of hats, and the history of Cleveland architecture. Today, though, I'm thrilled to be kicking off the new season with a discussion of one of MSU Press's 10 award-winning academic journals, Revista de Estudios de Género y Sexualidades, or the Journal of Gender and Sexuality Studies. Thanks for tuning in. Revista de Estudios de Género y Sexualidades is the journal of the Association of Gender and Sexuality Studies. First published in the spring of 1975 at the University of Colorado, Denver, REGS is one of the earliest academic journals devoted to gender-related issues, women authors, and feminist theory in the context of Hispanic literatures and cultures. Published biannually in a mix of Spanish and English, the journal includes critical articles on gender studies topics, unpublished work by Spanish, Latin American, and Latino-Latina authors, poets, and playwrights, interviews with writers, artists, filmmakers, and critics, and a substantial book review section in every issue. I'm excited to be joined today to discuss regs and academic editing by the journal's editor-in-chief, Rocio Quispe Annually, and Jose Bandio Carlos, the journal's first editorial assistant. In addition to serving as the editor of regs, Dr. Quispe Annually is professor of post-colonial Latin American studies with affiliations in the American Indian Studies Program, and the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies at Michigan State University. Dr. Quispe Annually is also a well-published author of both academic and creative works, most recently, Women's Negotiations and Textual Agency in Latin America, 1500 to 1799, from Rutledge in 2017. Jose Carlos is a PhD candidate in Hispanic Cultural Studies and is currently finishing his doctoral dissertation on Mexico's corruption and violence in contemporary cultural productions. Thank you both so much, Rocio and Jose, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you, Kerr, for inviting us too. I'm really excited to talk about journal publishing on the podcast. We did a whole set of episodes last season um, and didn't manage to talk about journal publishing, but it's an important part of what happens at MSU Press and REGS is such an interesting journal with a long and important history. I wonder if we could start with a bit of discussion about where the journal came from and Rocio, how you came to serve as the editor. The journal was founded by um, a Costa Rican writer and a scholar and college professor, Victoria Urbano, who in 1975, at the time she was working in Lamar University in Texas, and as you have mentioned in your introduction, the first uh, year the journal was published with a sponsorship of University of Colorado. And then it has been published since 1975 without interruption to the present. The journal was born at the same time than the Association of Women's Studies that sponsors the journal. The first um, name of such association, also founded by Victoria Urbano, was Association of Feminine um, Literature or Hispanic Feminine Literature. And then over the years, um, this association 
changed names as well as the journal to what it is today. The association is called uh, Association of Gender and Sexuality Studies. Until 2017, it had another name that emphasized women's studies and the feminine, which still we uh, study extensively, but the association's name and the journal that used to be Les Femininas until 2017 as well, we realized that our mission had expanded beyond women's studies or women's literary production in the Luso-Hispanic world. And that is how we realized the necessary expansion to include gender studies, masculinities, uh, sexualities, and um, feminist criticism, but also criticism of the construction of the the masculine, etc. So it's a, it's a very ample area that is um, very inclusive. That's what we aspire to to do. I have always wanted to direct uh, a scholarly journal. So the journal is edited by um, scholars who are members of the active members of the association. And the the editors have a term of five years. They can be uh, reappointed for another five years. So what happens is that the editor-in-chief has to provide uh, the the means and the resources to uh, publish two issues a year of the journal, uh, while the association provides the funding to uh, the institution or the editor-in-chief to, to make that happen. Already in 2018, I had the idea that the, the person who was the editor at the time was a professor in the University of Illinois, Chicago. She had announced that her term was finishing in December 2018 and that she was not going to continue. Therefore, a search for a new editor was going to begin in 2019, and I approached Natalie Eidenier at the MSU Press. Natalie is the journal's manager, and I asked her, what about bringing this journal that is servicing people studying in these areas, etc.? And uh, she was very enthusiastic and interested because MSU Press uh, at that point didn't have any specific uh, publication in the Hispanic world that had to do with the Hispanic world and the Luso Hispanic world that includes Portugal and Brazil. So that is when we started a long conversation. It took us almost um, more than one year to align the resources that MSU Press could provide the funding of the association and also the resources that my department and the college were able to, or were willing to provide and were able to provide to make it happen. These big institutions are, are slow moving and hard to get coordinated. So to conduct that sort of a move is always, as you say, an impressive and, and elaborate feat. I wanted to follow up on something you said during your answer, which was that you've always wanted to edit the scholarly journal, that you had the sort of feeling like, being an editor would be a, an important part of your scholarly career. I, I feel like you talk to a lot of editors who sort of find their way into it accidentally. And a lot of, a lot of scholarly journal editors complain about you know, the fact that it's, it's 
to a certain degree uncompensated work, that it's unrecognized as a lot of it seems to happen kind of behind the scenes. What is it that drew you to scholarly journal editing? And what did you hope you could accomplish for the field that you serve at the helm of the journal? Uh, there are several aspects to, to that topic, but one of them stemmed from my experience as a, as a teacher, especially as a teacher of graduate students' advanced seminars, because uh, we make a reflection together, the teacher and the students, and the goal, or one of the goals of these seminars, at least for me as, a, as an instructor, is that the students end up with a good piece, a scholarly piece, meaning essay, of a publishable quality. And why is that? That, has, that is related to their future career and also to the job market that is becoming increasingly uh, uh, demanding. And by that, I mean that they require positions today in the job market. They require publications. Well, this experience I have been teaching for 20 years or 19 years by the time, uh, graduate students and working, working on their writing of their essays and the productions of essays that is not only writing, it starts way before that. Um, has given me first I like doing it it's 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 natural for me to do that to to help editing or creating uh, essays to teach someone okay think about an issue and let's let's pose a thesis what is the thesis that is always something that I ask and I love scholarly research I always tell my students that for me scholarly but scholarly research is as exciting as being Indiana Jones in a movie because I know, never know where I'm going to end up, but I'm going to end up in a good place. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure about that. So uh, I wanted and I want to foster that among my students. And then what happens when you advance in the career, when you go from junior to senior faculty, what happens is that... Uh, you are mentoring not only graduate students, but I, I mentor junior faculty, associate professors, and I even give advice to, to full professors in, in the field, you know, and, and this, is, this happens in an informal way. So that is one aspect that brings me to editing. And the other thing is that I have edited. Three issues, three special issues of journals, and uh, one um, collection of essays, the one in Rowledge that you mentioned in, in the presentation. Right now, I am uh, working on a collection of essays to be published by Cambridge University Press. It's a very large volume with 26 essays in my field. And all that gives you, I, I like doing it. Uh, I believe in it that to bring scholars together or minds together to think about a topic, a common topic, but then to see how different people come from different places and you can look at the same thing from 1,000 uh, perspectives and they all are valid and can be fascinating and I just love seeing that. So that comes into the editorial work as well. The other thing is, or the third aspect 
to this is that I got promoted to full professor uh, five years ago. And when you reach that point, it's like you have reached the top, no? the top or perhaps for some, the end of the, the, the path, a very long path in, in an academic career. And I have proven myself that I can write books and I can write essays and I can publish them and I can put together collections of essays and got them through the uh, publishing process. So uh, for me, the next natural step was to work as an editor of a scholarly journal or an editor of a book series in uh, a university or academic press. And Rex came along at the right moment and I wanted to do it. I knew it was going to be challenging, of course, because uh, I have never done it before. One thing is to edit a special issue, uh, one, at, at a specific time, and you are actually working under, under the umbrella of the editor-in-chief. Uh, and another thing is to be fully responsible for one uh, specific journal. So uh, the opportunity of REC came along, and I decided to, to ride the wave. And I have been doing it officially for eight months. But uh, uh, as, as much as Jose is going to share with us uh, soon, in those eight months, Kurt, I have learned so much. I thought I knew a lot about editing, but I have learned so much in the last eight months about the editorial process. And now I understand way better how it works, why it takes time, and it's... Um, type of uh, information knowledge that I want to share with peers, with, with the students, uh, to help them plan the research paths in an academic career. Because uh, one, of, one of the things that people tend to overlook is the time, the investment of time that is between, uh, oh, I submit an article for consideration and it will be published in three months. Uh -uh, that's not going to happen that way. In a serious journal uh, that does peer review, blind peer review as we do, and where revisions are asked several times through different levels until it's, it's approved, a final version is acceptable to go public, it's going to take at least seven, eight months. That's the shortest in the, in the time I am as an editor. That's the shortest it has taken for one article. Uh, seven months because a lot of things aligned in the right way. But it can take uh, 20 months, 21 months, etc. And people need to understand why that happens, one, and they have to plan accordingly. So um, all this comes together to create uh, I am going to call them beautiful pieces because when the, the final version of an essay is accepted by me and the editorial team I work with, that piece has gone through many revisions to make it optimal uh, and to make it a very fine piece and a contribution to the field. The best part of the job, perhaps, is when I finally send a letter of acceptance to an author. And that we only sent after the, all the revisions are in place. It's a long journey. And I, as you say, it does have moments of, of joy and delight. I wonder if we can get Jose in here to start thinking about 
what that kind of looks like on the ground. You know, you've described the the degree to which publishing processes can take a long time and how a thoroughly peer-reviewed journal can contribute to uh, not necessarily delays, but a sort of time scale that's different than folks who are used to publishing online or in blogs or something would expect. I wonder, Jose, if you could tell us um, the issue, the journal publishes twice a year. What's the sort of submission load look like? How many articles are you dealing with at any given time? How many um, folks are you working with on peer reviewing those articles? Um, And sort of what does the production scale look like, you know, on a day-to-day behind the scenes at Regs? Hey, Kurt, you know what? I think Rocio might be able to answer that question as far as, you know, how many articles they receive in the production of those articles. My role as the copy editor was sort of in in the middle of the whole publishing process. So after the articles had been submitted and had been gone through the double blind review, then Rocio as the editor would, you know, uh, accept the articles and assign them to the issue that they were going that they're going to be published. So then that's when they would come to me. And so my role looking at it from like a more general perspective, I was sort of like part of the middle of the process. And so I, I made sure that, you know, I would go through the articles and read everything so meticulously, just looking for errors, um, um, formatting issues, anything that, that I could do to improve that essay, you know, as far as formatting and working with the authors as well to make that a piece uh, make that piece better and publishable so that anyone could just, you know, read it in its best form. And so that's, that's really where I came in and what I uh, did, just paying a lot of attention to the details, the uh, organization of the essay and working with uh, the editor, in this case, Rocio, and also with the author. So I, I did a little bit of everything in order to get, you know, the essay where it needed to be to be published in its best form. I wonder if we could follow that up by thinking a, a little bit specifically, maybe this was maybe not an issue that you worked on, but I was, I'm really impressed by looking at the regs back catalog and the current issues um, and thinking about the large variety of content that the journal publishes. So your typical academic journal produces academic journal articles. They're approximately 15 to 20 pages long. They're heavily footnoted. Uh, you know, a large bibliography. Um, but Regs is doing those kinds of articles, but also creative work, publishing interviews, um, book reviews, and a variety of other kinds of writing that doesn't neatly fit into the academic category. For instance, in one of your recent issues is a special issue de- dedicated to reimagining female disabilities in Luso-Hispanic women's cultural production. Um, Jose, we could start with you since you were working closely with the articles in question. How do you approach those different genres when you come to copy editing? Do you treat a creative writer differently than you treat an academic writer or vice versa? You know, I try to be as impartial as possible. I looked at the text. I looked at the essays. I went through it and looking for those mistakes, there wasn't any really like, well, I like the the way that this author is writing it. So maybe there's, you know, uh, maybe there's something we can do about the style or anything. No, I was just focused on um, on all those technical aspects that needed to be corrected. But I did 
enjoy reading those essays, those other creative writing, those other creative essays. But mostly my job was, you know, just to get the essays ready for publication and working with the uh, with the authors. I wasn't really um, treating them differently in one way or another. Is the same thing true, Rocio, for like the peer review process? Does a creative work undergo the same kind of peer review or? Yeah. Thank you, Kurt. What happens is that uh, we publish regular issues. Regular issues means that they are open issues that anyone working on the areas that are uh, part of the scope of the journal, they submit their essays and or creative works or proposals for interviewing writers, artists, etc. to the journal. Those are regular issues. And then we have the special monographic issues like the one you mentioned on um, disability studies and literature in the loose Hispanic world. Those follow um, a different process that make it longer to take place, even longer than a special regular issue, because those come up from proposals for special issues and we have a call and we have a template and an application, there is a call that comes up two years before we are going to, or we plan to have the special issue um, actually published. And there is a call among the members of the association, of the Association of Gender and Sexuality Studies. Uh, and anyone can become a member of the association anytime. But uh, the call goes to that group of people. That association has more than 1,000 members right now. It has around 1,200 members, individual members. I mean, I'm, I'm not counting the libraries. Those go into subscriptions. So there is a call for special monographic issues, and then there is a long list of items that have to accompany, accompany the, the proposal. And the, pro, the proposal, in this, in this case, this one was selected on disability and literary studies, has to provide uh, a description on why this topic matters to a journal like ours and the goals and uh, basic bibliography. And there is a guest editor or two uh, guest editors that have to provide credentials, meaning people who have been working on the, the, the topic of the special issue. In the case of disability studies and, and, and literature in the Luso Hispanic world, we had Esther Fernandez, who has been working on disabilities in the modern, early modern Spanish world, and Victoria Katz, who's a specialist in 20, 21st century. They were the co-editors. They put the, the proposal together, and they also have to include a guest editorial board that is usually composed of three, four scholars in the field, in the specific field. that They also have to provide the credentials. So they, they apply, people apply with proposals. And then there is a um, committee, a selection committee formed by members of the journal's editorial team and members of the association to select the best proposal for the, for the next uh, special monographic issue. We usually receive between three to five proposals and one is selected. And uh, then what happens after the selection, and the uh, guest editors start immediately to work with the editor-in-chief, that they actually started working with the former one. 
from uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. And they started working with me during the transference in the last, uh, in the second half of 2018 until we finished it and we were able to publish it in May this year. So they work with the editor-in-chief for all the logistics of, of the publication and the, and the review process. And the way it happens for monographic issues is that they issue a call for proposal again that is just summaries and uh, pro a proposed title of an essay and the summary and bibliography. And in that specific case, um, the guest editors received 35, 37 proposals and they selected a number. I don't know the exact number, but at the end, because it always happens between the selection and then what actually uh, is submitted. From the 37 proposals, they selected a number and they say to you, for example, Kurt, we like your proposal. We want your essay by this deadline. And at the end, 11, 11 articles were published and in that uh, scholarly articles were published in that issue. There is always the introduction that is the piece number 12. Uh, the introduction written to the topic, written by the guest editors. There was an interview to a filmmaker, a Spanish filmmaker, that has, Almudena Caceda, that has um, a production, a film production on characters with disabilities. So that is a special monographic issue. The regular issues, they have three sections that are regular. One is a section of scholarly essays, usually between eight to nine critical essays, then a section of book reviews. And we have a book review editor, Vinod Venkatesh from Virginia Tech, who does a fantastic job. And he is, he, he takes the lead on all what is book reviews. He's, he manages, he receives the books, he assigns the books, looks for reviewers. And then he is the editor working with all the book reviewers and he is also he takes care of the copy editing or one stage of copy editing uh, for that section the third section that always appears is the section of interviews we have colleagues interviewing writers artists intellectuals that are working on women's studies gender sexuality studies that they have a very renowned uh, trajectory. The writers and artists and filmmakers that are featuring the interviews must have a minimum trajectory and their work must be relevant uh, to our readership. Now these three sections, essays, interviews, and book reviews, they are constant. We aim to publish one interview per issue and not more than one interview per issue. Then there is a fourth section that may or may not be, which is creative works. And these are creative works from members of the association. There's a significant number of, of uh, scholars and, uh, that, that write creatively. And we also have writers as members of the association. So this is open to them. And it goes through a, a peer review process, which is 
trickier when it comes to creative writing. It implies another kind of tools. It's another way of doing the revision. And we always have at least one creative writer in the editorial board. And if not, I, well, I am a creative writer myself. I publish as a creative writer with another name, but in Spanish. And then uh, we have a network of uh, uh, creative writers and artists that, uh, to whom we request for feedback. Peer reviewing, this is very interesting, and this could be uh, another conversation. Peer reviewing critical essays is quite different from peer reviewing creative writing. And peer reviewing creative writing, I think it's more difficult to do because there are other more subjective elements to creative writing than to uh, scholarly writing. It's easier uh, for most people to offer a critical review uh, because you can point out, you as a scholar, you can point out where the issues are and how this is working or not working and you are lacking sources here and there, etc. But when it comes to creative writing, it's, it's trickier because you have to go beyond the issue of taste. I like it or I don't like it. Now you have to look into other, there are other aspects of the review, composition, language, etc. And people take it more personally when they receive uh, critics to the creative writing, but well. And then there is another section that is sporadic that is called uh, the Victoria Urbano Awards. These are just very brief reports, usually not longer than one, two pages, just reports of the annual awards and uh, several categories, best uh, book, uh, best um, creative works, uh, creative work, recognition, academic recognition. These are awards the association grants every year in the, because the association holds an, a congress uh, or an annual conference. You know. Uh, so when that happens, when, when we grant the awards that we have done it without interruption either, there is a one-to-page report on those awards. So those are, those are the sections and each one has like its own set of rules. Now, when we are getting the pieces for the issue together, I work very closely with Anna Corbaland, Associate Editor, and Vinod Venkatesh. We, we work as a team. And when we have doubts or I have doubts of any kind, especially when there are some essays that have certain issues I'm not sure, or Anna and I'm not sure, we're not sure, we always consult with each other or consult with Vinod because we are specialists in different areas within gender and sexuality studies. So it, it's, it's a teamwork, yeah. I may hit the button for the letter of acceptance, but there is a lot of teamwork behind. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Rocio Quispe Anjuli, editor of the journal Revista de Estudios de Género y Sexualidades for MSU Press, and Jose Badillo Carlos, the journal's editorial assistant. One of the things I really liked about your answer, Rocio, was the degree to which the sections of the journal you're describing also describe segments of the society that produces the journal and groups of um, potential readers for the journal. So when you're doing special issues, you're working with an editorial board made up from made up of members of the society. It's creative writers in the society who are contributing these 
creative writing compositions, you're interviewing prominent folks in the field. It all speaks to the degree to which REGS is a, it's a community of scholars who are working together in a field and moving in a particular direction. Um, and the, the very structure of the journal reflects that. And I feel like you've given listeners a really great picture of the work that goes into constructing those different sections of the journal, collecting the work, reviewing the work, producing the work. I wonder if we could give them a little sense of the kinds of contents that they'll describe in the journal, perhaps a a favorite article or two from recent publications or works on topics that seem to recur in regs. What does the kind of meat inside of the journal look like? Uh, That's a very interesting question. I can talk about uh, trends or uh, themes that come over and over again. Um, And one of them is a a big, big theme is the relationship between uh, literature and cinema. We receive many essays about that relationship and working with cinematic texts. In fact, the next special issue that is going to be published, it's in preparation right now. That one is focused on cinema and gender. Another one, it's, it's uh, an, an, another area in which there is a lot of uh, contributions. They have to do with the violence and terror of dictatorships or the states against disenfranchised subjects, uh, socially, socially considered minorities like women or members of the LGBTQ plus community uh, or the differences between between the sexes, you know, and the the male versus female, the domination. In Latin America and Spain um, and Portugal, we receive many that have to deal with that topic across the board. And of course, these these are focused in the 19th and the 2021st century. Those are regular topics. Then there is one that I like very much, and I would like Jose to talk about this because he worked closely with this one. It, called, it caught me by surprise, but I think we need more like those. That is an article that's going to be published in the November issue about uh, narco-narratives and narco-novela, and this uh, specialty of, of Jose. Uh, I remember when I received, or when we received the article, you know, I read the the abstract we always check the article first the article any article we receive it always goes through a first filter that is the editorial team to to see if the article can go to the next step which is the evaluation by peer reviewers because sometimes we we receive articles that are kind of incomplete that look more like a draft or a paper for a class or a draft chapter of a dissertation that they don't adjust to what is expected in a scholarly essay to be published in a journal. So we stop it right there because we don't want to waste the time of the peer reviewers. But well, I, I read this article about the, uh, the Mexican uh, narconovela Perra Brava, and I remember the, the name, the title, and again, Jose can talk more about that. We'll talk more about that. Uh, it, it took me by surprise because it's it's a very strong language in Spanish. You know, uh, brava can be angry or courageous and perra is bitch. You no, know? it's, 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 oh my God, it's very, very strong language. 
and uh, it turns out it was written by a woman, a very young woman, a very young uh, writer in Mexico. And that took me by surprise because there is this uh, partial view that women write about certain things, but they don't write about other things or they don't write within certain genres. And one of them is narco narratives or narco novels. And that took me by surprise. And I think the Went Through Review is an excellent article. I'm very happy we're publishing it in November. And I would like Jose to elaborate more on that one because he worked very closely with that one, Jose. Yeah, I, I think that was one of my favorite articles just because of the topic. And he, like you said, Rocio, he caught me by surprise as well. The language, the style of the writer it was, it was, it was, uh, was impressive. So I actually took, took notes to improve my own writing. That article, Perra Brava, based on that now, I really enjoy reading it. And by the time I finished it, I was like, you know, I, I wish I could read more essays based on this topic or a similar topic. And it would be, it would be great to have a, a special issue on maybe this similar topic. But, you know, that's, that's, that's just me being a fan of this series or this narco narratives. Jose, could I ask you, I'm, I'm sorry to cut in, but I was wondering as a, you know, my, my academic research is in 18th century British literature. So the degree to which I know what you're talking about when you refer to narco narratives is pretty low. And I imagine other listeners might be in the same place as I am. Could you give me a brief sense of what what kind of work happens in that genre and and what are what what is this article looking at you know what kinds of um things constitute a narco narrative yeah so in in the past decade i would say maybe the past two decades but mostly in the past 15 years there's there's been a boom in tv series uh music film literature uh there's been a boom of this narrative that deals about drug trafficking and so it, it mostly uh, was uh, influenced by the uh, war on drugs that started or reignited uh, back in 2006 with Mexican President Felipe Calderon. So he declared war. And it's, this war against drug trafficking has been going on since the 70s, but it didn't really finish uh, with drug trafficking like it intended to. But in 2006, Presidente Felipe Calderón, he declared this war against drug trafficking and the violence just just erupted everywhere in Mexico. And so music was one of the first fields where we started to see these uh, themes, you know, in music. And so then literature also responded to that violence uh, generated by this war against drugs. And so then eventually uh, more fields started to catch up and they started to create more content based on this drug trafficking theme. And there were, were previous works before this war of drugs that started in 2006. But I think in the last 15 years, it started to be more and more popular. And so now we see it in TV series, we see it in um, Netflix series, films, music, and everywhere you know, all kinds of even art. And so there's been this demand 
for this type of production with this themes of drug trafficking. And the one that I can think of is uh, the Queen of the South, which it is being produced by uh, the USA Network. But before it was presented to to the U.S. audience, it actually was a book or it was a novel written by Arturo Pérez Reverte, Spanish writer. It was popular. There's also uh, a band, one of the most popular bands in Mexico, uh, Los Tigres del Norte. They recorded a corrido or narco corrido because the narco just, you know, the thematic, the theme of drug trafficking. So they recorded this song based on this novel. And then a few years later, Telemundo decided to adapt this novel into a TV series. I mean, it was it, it became a phenomenon. And then, you know, a few years later, the USA Network decided to take that and to adapt it into a TV series for the uh, American audience. And so there's been this demand for productions that deal with this drug trafficking. Uh, narrative and it you know it covers violence corruption politics uh, economics all kinds of things and they're all very different in in their own way yeah if i may add they relate and i am talking now as the the viewer the tv viewer the consumer of these uh, it's 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 not my favorite genre but <laughs> when it's amazingly well written it catches me it goes in the line of breaking bad it goes in the line of the Netflix series Narcos. The genre is related to that uh, or relates to that kind of production. I really appreciate that that description and, and the sense of the sort of breadth of what's going on in the journal, you know, that it's touching on so many different issues and looking at, at them through a popular culture lens or through the lens of um, thinking about what's happening in contemporary politics in Mexico and elsewhere. We're just about out of time. I think we've we've been talking for quite a bit now, and I want to make sure before we go to ask what the future holds. Rocio, you said that you've only been editing the journal for about eight months, even though it took a while to to get things over into MSU Press and rolling. What do you hope to accomplish in the next you know in the next few volumes going forward and over your tenure as the editor of the journal? We received the journal with a one year backlog. And I remember before, or when I was in the process of uh, getting the application together and the support from the different stakeholders, I talked to experienced editors of other journals that have gone through a similar experience, which is to receive a journal with a backlog, which is very, not a good thing to start with. But along with Natalie Idenier, who is uh, crucial for this to happen, and of course, the editorial team that we have, we were able to produce uh, the two issues of 2019 this year. The first one is the one on disability studies that came out in May. The second one is a regular one that came out in July. And the third one that comes up in November is actually a double issue, and it corresponds to year 2020. And it's a double issue. that we are doing it for pragmatic purposes because we want to resolve the backlog and go back to the right sequence, which we will be after that one. And uh, also because it coincides with the 45th anniversary of the journal. And we wanted to do something special. And that is why 
we are having that double issue in November 2020. So when we have that resolved, one of the goals I had when I started, well, I had several goals, but one of them was, of course, to resolve the issue and to get us into a working calendar. And uh, we have worked so hard this year, especially this summer, that the two issues that are going to appear in 2021 are, they are not ready, but they are full in the sense that we already have accepted enough essays for both. So essays and interviews, we're way ahead on the preparation of interviews, thanks to Anna and uh, people who are willing uh, to reach out to the big names in uh, Latin America and Spanish and Portuguese and Brazilian literature to, to speak with us. So the two issues of 2021 are in the making right this moment as we speak. Then I have to project to 2022, which is one of the things I wanted to get to, to get to that point. Uh, one uh, experienced journal editor told me once that a good editor plans with two or three years in advance. So you have control of your your calendar. And uh, right now we are uh, reviewing articles for issues starting in 2022. This year we have received 69 submissions between essays and interviews. 28 of those have been accepted with revisions and either they were published in July or they will be published in November or they will be published in 2021. And then uh, 44 were not accepted. And uh, there is like 20 that are in progress of revisions. They have already passed peer review. They are being in uh, like the third uh, step of, of revisions. So uh, when I started with the journal, I did not have a clear idea of how much we had, how many submissions. I didn't have a clear idea of statistics. So that was one of the goals too, you know, to, to get the statistics so we can plan. So now as months pass, we have a better idea every time and we are planning ahead of time. There are going to be two changes that I have already discussed with the society. And also I consulted with Natalie. One of them is that as the editor-in-chief, we can, or that any editor-in-chief in our journal has the right and the prerogative to uh, make changes in the editorial board. So what we are going to do, because we have an editorial board that has not changed for some time, you know, uh, more than five years, and, and the um, roles of the members of the editorial board are not clear, have not been clearly defined. So one of the things that we are going to do uh, for, and starts with a November issue, is to uh, create two bodies, two editorial bodies. One is a, an editorial council, where we have uh, around 10 very prestigious names associated with our fields. And the role will be uh, not a small, but we won't demand much of, of them. It's actually advice. That's, I, it's, it's a body to which I, I can go 
to seek advice uh, uh, when we encounter tricky situations or perhaps we want new ideas or we run it by the wise people of the field. And the second uh, body, it's going to be the editorial board itself, but its functions, they are going to be clearly defined because I want these people to participate more in the making of the journal, in the production of, of the journal, in terms of peer reviews, in terms of one annual meeting to discuss thematic directions, uh, which areas we are not covering or which which themes we are not covering in, 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 in our publication, uh, understudied areas, and other kinds of details that I am not thinking of or the people, the editorial team are not thinking of. And these people of the editorial board, we're going to follow the guidelines or the steps that other journals sponsored by societies follow which is to issue a call for members, for people interested to serve in this editorial board from the membership of the society. And of course, they have to have uh, a certain profile credentials. We want to cover different areas within uh, the Luso Hispanic literary and cultural world. The second um, initiative is that I have noticed areas or themes that are completely understudied. And even within women's studies, gender and sexuality studies in the Luso Hispanic world. So, since we can only have one special issue every, uh, well, this, this is not a rule, this is something I inherited from the previous administration, but I think it's right, the, the sequence is right to have one special issue every two issues. However, there are certain areas in which perhaps it's not possible to gather 35 proposals for a, a topic like disability studies, but it still are worthy to pay attention to. So I'm thinking in something I call right now mini dossiers that are like clusters of articles, um, not more than five altogether, about a specific uh, topic. For instance, one of them uh, that I'm already making list of potential contributors is science fiction. Science fiction and gender in the Luso-Hispanic world. That exists, but is understudied. In, it has never been published in our journal. And in the, in, the 20, in, the, in the 45 years of history of the journal, that topic of science fiction, either women writers of science fiction or uh, how gender relations or sexuality issues in science fiction written in Spanish or Portuguese has not been a focus of an essay in uh, our journal. Then another one is another pos uh, potential topic, and this is not so much understudied, but our journal has not published on uh, any special issue on that, is masculinities. No, the idea of how masculinities are, are constructed, represented, perceived, consumed in the Luso-Hispanic societies. Uh, another one is the relationship between literature and photography, and especially in the case of women photographers. 
Oh, another one is graphic narratives, uh, comics, no? Graphic narratives and comics, and in Latin America, in Spain, Brazil, etc. that's another one. And uh, women who uh, create comics and graphic narratives in, again, in the Luso-Hispanic world that there are, it's just that they are not so much known or, uh, again, it's, it's an understudied um, area. That is uh, a proposal I, I have or any, an initiative more than a proposal. You know, this is one of the great paradoxes, I think, of academic journal publishing is that you look at publications like REGS or others from the outside, and it seems like how much could one possibly say about such a niche topic? But then to hear you describe all of these great ideas that you have and all of the new directions that can go, it just goes to show how broad the fields are and how much work remains to be done despite, you know, the boom and the growth over the 45 years that the journal's been in publication. It's really exciting to hear about all of those ideas and to like think about how much more space there is to keep working in those fields. Um, I wonder if we could get Jose in here at the end. Jose, I know that your term as the editorial assistant for the journal has ended. Do you see scholarly publishing as part of your career trajectory, as part of your scholarly identity uh, as you step away from the journal and continue pursuit of your PhD? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And actually, this gave me a lot of uh, insight through this whole processing uh, or this publishing process. It actually helped me uh, improve my, my reading and my writing because reading these different authors and, you know, looking at how they implemented some of the ideas, some of the concepts, and how they build based on theories, how they build their arguments. That helped me see, you know, different things and how to improve and how to apply that to my own writing. So, yeah, this is definitely something that I, you know, that opened me, opened uh, my perspective to, to different um, techniques. And also it helped me stay up to date with the topics that are, you know, being discussed in academia. And it, it, I, I really wish I could continue doing this too. Uh, but this is something that it's going to be part of, you know, part of me, part of that profession. And I would like to continue uh, doing something like this. So the, the closest thing to being a copy editor is, you know, working on my own uh, articles, rewriting my own articles based on what I learn and, and uh, sending it to, to journals and, and getting feedback, which is, you know, part of the process and publishing, you know, in the future. So I sent out uh, an article about two weeks ago and I'm working on the second one, improving it and so I can send it to another, another journal. But yeah, this is definitely a great experience. And uh, I think more graduate students would, would benefit from this, uh, from this opportunity. That's great. Um, I think with that, we're pretty much out of time. Before we go, I want to say thanks so much to both of you, Rocio Quispe Anjuli and Jose Betillo Carlos for joining us today. It's been a really excellent experience to get a look behind the scenes of your journal and um, to think about the excellent work that you're doing over there. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. Thank you very much for, for inviting us, Kurt. And, and I would like to add, just to finish, well, we have, of course, the digital portal of the journal in MSU Press to submit articles. Then we have another page in the MSU 
press where they offer uh, the table of contents of the published uh, issues and the possibility of uh, purchasing print copies. But also, uh, Jose and I worked on, uh, started working, and we, I will continue working on video tutorials of, um, to guide, to help our uh, present and future contributors on the editorial process. They need to understand why it takes so long from submitting to publishing an article. They need to understand that and they need to understand all the steps of the editorial process before and after me, before and after the editorial assistants work like Jose. And then when it finally goes to the manager, the journalist manager, who is, who is Natalie. So we have a YouTube channel with uh, video tutorials that is, well, the links are available in the different web pages. I just wanted to point that out, that we have those resources we'll con and we will continue building them. That's great. Um, as Rocio said, issues of Revista de Estudios de Genero y Sexualidades are available from msupress.org and in JSTOR and other fine scholarly databases. I'll put a link to the YouTube channel that Dr. Kispe-Noli just mentioned in the description of this podcast. You can find the journal RDGS on Twitter at AEGS2018. Dr. Kispe-Anholi is on Twitter and Instagram at Kispe-Anholi. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Mill. You can rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts or send your feedback to milberg2 at msu.edu. The MSU Press Podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Mandy Hagos, Kylie Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.